Okay. Um, oh, we've got slide one. That's good. Right. A parent once asked their young daughter why it was important to be quiet in church. She replied, because people are sleeping. <laughs> Maybe they weren't sleeping. Maybe they were praying. Maybe. If anyone here is asleep, can you put your hand up, please? I thought Keith would. <laughs> right, today we're going to study about 57 words of the Bible, what's known as the Lord's Prayer, the prayer Jesus gave us. What was his prayer is also our prayer, and it covers just about everything that God can give us. This study will be a journey through the prayer of Jesus, but it needs to start with a short journey through the Gospel of Matthew so that we better understand the context of what we read and learn about in the Lord's Prayer. And I hope it's not a spoiler alert, but hopefully both these journeys will be finished by about five past twelve. If we can read what is on the screen, could we please do so? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts and forgive us that temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Jeff showed us the beginning of the Lord's Prayer in, some, in various languages. And I thought maybe I should say the Lord's Prayer today in the way you'd hear it if you went to a CNI church. As any, I don't know if people have been to a CNI church. I've been to a few. It's Church of North India. They may not all do it in this way, but all the ones I've been to would do it like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven, give us today our daily bread. Forgive our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, amen. Now, I don't know about you, but I simply could not keep up with that. I knew the words, but by the time they got to about line two, I was completely lost. Um, so different people say the Lord's Prayer in different ways, and they've got different um, cultures. But one thing that's... Oh, I've got to spin this back now. Yeah, that's about it. Right, so all interpretation of Matthew from chapter 1, verse 1, through to chapter 28, verse 20, has to take into account where it's from. Matthew records faithfully the life of Jesus, but presents it with a particular viewpoint. He makes this clear in chapter 1, verse 1, by starting with the genealogy of Christ Messiah, sorry, of Jesus Messiah. He is saying that his primary audience is Jews, and that his primary intent is to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah. No problem with that. His gospel also works well for helping to convince anyone that Jesus is God's Messiah. Matthew starts with a genealogy to show the place of Jesus in history. For a Jew, the placement of Jesus as the first name mentioned, plus the way the genealogy is divided, is significant. It shows that Jesus is the most important thing that has happened in Jewish history and that his life starts the, marks the start of a new work by God. 
Matthew then shows in uh, chapter 118 through to 223 the place of Jesus in prophecy. And in 3.1 to chapter 3, verse 17, the anointing of Jesus by God as his Messiah. The Jews expected the Messiah to overcome their enemies. And chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, shows Jesus overcoming Satan, their greatest enemy. After this prologue, Jesus gathers his disciples and begins his teaching. One early teaching is the sequence we're studying now, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. We know from Luke 6, uh, verses 20 to 36, that Jesus gave a similar teaching in other places. But Matthew chooses to recount the version told on a mountainside. We've already heard from Pete Hay and others how symbolic this setting was. Matthew is deliberately reminding his Jewish audience of God delivering the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. He has already told his audience that Jesus is God's anointed Messiah, so this presentation is showing Jesus delivering God's law to a new audience. The initial giving of the law resulted in a very formalized way of worshipping God. There was no direct contact with God but instead everything went through a priest who made sacrifices. The Jew in the street was a long way removed from the centre of the temple. Matthew shows Jesus starting his sermon with what we call the Beatitudes. In this, Jesus says how different actions are blessed. But we need to remember that it's not just a person who is saying that the actions are blessed. It's the Son of God who is saying it. For example, the verse, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Jesus is in effect saying, I, God, will accept you if you seek to be a peacemaker. You are adopted into my family and have the same status as a son. Jesus is telling the crowd and us that the things that we can do in our day-to-day -day lives with no priests involved, can result in being adopted into God's family. Wow! For us today, adoption is a big thing. But for Jews, adoption meant even more. It meant being granted all the rights of the family doing the adoption and sharing in their inheritance. In the Old Testament, after the law was given to Moses in Exodus 20, verses 1 to 26, God explained how his teaching should work out in people's lives in chapters 21 through to 23. And Jesus repeats this pattern, moving on to show how his teaching can work out in people's lives in his own version of Exodus 21 to 23. He gives a series of examples from the law and shows how people should behave when having direct contact with God. A common feature of his teaching is the use of repetition. It shows how people's daily actions can build up their relationship with the God who loves them and is eager to adopt them. The teaching of the Sermon on the Mount applies to us today just as much as it applied in Jesus' original audience. We're also adopted just as fully into God's personal family if we also take those actions. Jesus now turns his attention to prayer. We saw last week 
how Jesus taught that prayer should be a private conversation between each person and God. God is not interested in loud noises or long words. He is not impressed by a prayer that seems to go on forever, but lacks sincerity, so it's hollow inside. God is interested in honesty and openness. God knows what you need before you start to pray. But his love for us is so great that he's thrilled when we ask for these things ourselves. Jesus provides his own prayer as a model for our own prayer. It should not be the only prayer that we use, but it's a good guide for how we should approach God in prayer and what our priorities should be. Jesus gives us six subjects in his prayer, sometimes called petitions or pleas, and the sequence of these reflects the priorities of Jesus. The phrase on earth that is it so the phrase on earth as it is in heaven could be added to all six pleas, and is an appeal that in all things we should see God's heavenly glory here on earth. The first three pleas focus on God, praising his name, his kingdom, and his will. In these, the focus is on the word your, where we ask God to do things that only God can do. We cannot do any of the things we're asking for, but we can pray that God will complete this part of his work. The last three pleas focus on ourselves, begging God to meet our needs by providing sustenance, forgiveness and deliverance. If we look at the other prayer of Jesus in John 17, we also see the same focus on God looking at sorry, we also see the same focus on God before looking at anything else. This focus on God gives us our greatest need is to learn and to do the will of God. We now need to dig in a bit more to the words that Jesus said. Our Father in heaven. Heaven is not far away. Everything that is around us is known by God. God knows where every electron in every atom is and what it looks like, plus all the other little itty bits that scientists keep uncovering about God's creation. He knows where they all are, every itty bit of every atom in the entire universe, from the beginning of time to the end of time. God is all around us and in every itty bit of us. He sees us from the inside out and the outside in. In praying to God, we are acknowledging the power of God, as well as praying to his spirit that forms part of us all. Jesus is also showing that we have direct access to God. In an age where most people prayed, Most Holy One, or Lord of Hosts, Jesus said that we can call God Daddy. We can talk to God just as easily as we can with whoever we are closest to. And we have an assurance that God will listen to what we pray. Some people can react against this part of the prayer because they've had a bad experience with their own father and this is fully understandable. One thing I can say is to try and separate the personal bad experience of a father from the, ex from the healing experience of God portrayed symbolically as a perfect father. If considering Jesus is less painful than considering God as father, then focus on Jesus. 
If you're someone who has to pray our Jesus who is in heaven instead of our Father who is in heaven, your prayer is equally of value. We know from John 14 verse 9 that if we've seen Jesus, we've also seen God. The perfection of Jesus is also present in God who is also perfect. God's perfection does not result in rules, it results in love. All that we see from God is love and a desire for us to be the very best we can be. Hallowed be your name on earth as it is in heaven. We know that God's name was important to Jesus. In another prayer of Jesus, he says in John chapter 17, verse 6, I glorified you on earth. I have made your name known. For most things today, a name is not that important. But in the time of Christ, a name gave an insight into the person's expected character and reputation. For example, Ed, Shirley, Keith, Pat, etc., when used outside of a family context, they're not particularly special. But mention names like Porsche, Ferrari, Rolls-Royce, King's DIY. These are names with a reputation and command respect. For all these names are merely first division when compared to the premier world champion name of God. This is a bit of what it means in Proverbs chapter 2, verse 1. Choose a good name rather than great riches. Being held in high esteem is better than silver or gold. When Jesus says, hallowed be your name, he is acknowledging that God is already holy. He is also saying, may your name and all that you represent be respected and honoured and loved by everyone. This is echoed in Psalm 34 verse 3. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. There's a song on that basis. Oh. When we say the words, hallowed be your name, we're also repeating Jesus' desire that God would be respected and honoured and loved, both in our own lives and by everyone else. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. I'd like to do a quick survey. Hands up if you call yourself a revolutionary. Don't be shy. Just put your hand up if you're a revolutionary. Not many, or no one actually. Did you know that in praying your kingdom come, you're praying for a revolution? A revolution not of politics, but a revolution of justice mercy, humility and love. To see God's kingdom here on earth would see a massive change in how the world operates. It would be an end to slavery and poverty, an end to rank and privilege, an end to wars, and most of all, an end to sin. Many Jews at the time of Jesus limited their view of God's kingdom to be an end to Roman rule and a rebuilding of the true Jewish way of life throughout the old area of Israel. A lot of people put their own limits on what the kingdom of God may bring, but God does not have limits. 
Our God, who knows and loves every itty bit of his creation, will bring a kingdom of glory and righteousness that will change us and change everything we know. The life of Jesus gave us a flavour of what God's kingdom might contain, as seen in the miracles that he did. If we live out one or more of the Beatitudes, we're able to personally sample that flavour today. So, if you now think you're a revolutionary who wants to see God's kingdom here on earth, to permanently have the full flavour of God's kingdom all around us, please join me in saying, God, may your kingdom come. God, may your kingdom come. See, you're all revolutionaries. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's will takes into account all the consequences of doing something from the beginning of time to the end of it time and beyond. We do not. So we often pray for foolish things when what we actually need is something different simply because we do not see the big picture. It's like a prisoner praying for a warm rug for their cell rather than praying for freedom. If we seek God's word, then our horizon expands and we're better able to pray for what we need than what we think we want. We should also look at our own attitude when praying that God's will is done. Is it through anger or grief when we would have much preferred something different to have happened? Is it through resentment when we would have much preferred to be masters of our own destiny? Is it through resignation when we simply can't cope with looking at what our will or God's will may bring? Or is it through anticipation when we eagerly look forward to what God is about to do in our lives? God wants us to make us the best that we can be and for this to happen it means that God's will needs to be completed. We see this in Isaiah 46.10. that says, I said that my plans would never fail, that I would do everything I intended. That's the words of God. If we are unsure what God's will is, then we can get a good view of it from fairly early in the Old Testament. The first thing we find is that God wants us to be creative. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, God tells us to be fruitful, fill the earth and subdue it so that we can join God in the loving governance of his creation. We can be creative in many ways, through art, through making things, but the primary thing we should be doing in governance with God is treating what we govern with love and respect. The Bible gives us no mandate to pillage what is around us. Soon after God tells us to be fruitful, he says he wants us to be a blessing to others. In Genesis 12 verse 2, God says to Abraham and Sarah, I will bless you and make your name famous so that you will be a blessing. In Exodus chapter 3 verses 17 to 18, God shows he does not want us to live in bondage to sin and evil, saying, I know all about their sufferings, and so I have come down to rescue them. Above all, it's God's will that we live a life worthy of his kingdom. 
that we live a life reflecting the virtues given in the Beatitudes and that we truly know him. As God's will is done in our lives, here on earth as it is already done in heaven, we will become to a blessing to everyone we meet and in all that we do. Give us our daily bread on earth as it is in heaven. Halfway through the prayer of Jesus, that is also our prayer, Jesus' focus appears to move from the magnificence of God to the more mundane of our own lives. The call may be for bread, but we're also asking for all that we need to sustain us each day, so it covers food of all types, as well as housing and clothes. We see God's provision many times in the Old Testament. In Genesis 1 verse 26, God makes us stewards over all types of animals to use as food. And in 129, he gives us all types of grain and fruit, both to us and the animals, also for food. And then in Genesis 2 chapter 15, he provides us with a place to live in Eden. A wonderful place. But even though we, went, we as people went beyond what God had allowed and were expelled from Eden, God continued to provide by choosing Abram in Genesis 12 chapter 2 to be the father of a great nation that would bless the whole earth. God's provision continued with the provision of manna in Exodus 16.4 as bread from heaven. And the breaking of bread is a key part of the Passover meal and a key part of the communion that we've just had. The Old Testament shows how God provides everything that we need for each day. But the greatest provision of bread is in Jesus himself. In John 6 verse 35, Jesus says that he is the bread of life. Whoever comes to him will not go hungry. From starting with bread as physical sustenance we need every day, we come back to Jesus as being the spiritual sustenance we need every day. Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem, which means house of bread, has become the bread we need for every day. What we thought might be moving from the mundane, sorry, moving to the mundane, has not moved from the magnificent. When we pray this prayer of Jesus, we should remember that we are again being called closer to God's will and to live our lives in a manner that will honour it every day. Forgive our sins on earth as it is in heaven. Please wipe our slate clean. Cancel all our debts and forget we ever owed you anything. Say this to the bank or the mortgage company or almost anyone else and the response would be no. Say it to God to whom we owe the most and he will say yes but with one proviso. We need to do the same to everyone who owes us anything. Some translations use the word debt or transgression in place of the word sin and scholars argue which is the most correct. However, the underlying request to God remains much the same. We are asking God to forgive us 
what we have done wrong in the past. This is perhaps the boldest request of all in the Lord's Prayer. We're being bold not because we deserve to be forgiven. It is because having anything in our lives that separates us from God also prevents us from getting spiritually close to him and it prevents his love from reaching us. Forgiveness is not an option for God. It has to be done in order that his will for us is done and for his kingdom to come into our lives. It was so important that this topic, forgiveness, is the only plea from the prayer that, re- that Jesus repeats after it in Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 to 15. If we want to be close to God, he has to forgive us and we need to forgive all others. Some things will be easy to forgive, but sometimes the hurt will be so deep that forgiveness is incredibly hard. God can help us give forgiveness in even the hardest places. Many people here will have read how Corrie ten Boom found God gave her the ability to forgive the Nazi SS guard who imprisoned her and helped cause the death of her sister. Keeping anger locked in your mind and not releasing it as forgiveness is like having a squatter in your brain. Anger can keep you angry. It will always be hurting you and always be a barrier stopping you getting closer to God. It can take time, but God can help make the anger homeless by releasing it into forgiveness. Forgiving others helps set us free of the chains that bind us to the things we don't need and allow us to live out more of the Beatitudes in our own lives. This forgiveness, this mercy from God, is not something we can take and then continue in a life of deliberate sin. Continued sin means we hold on to the chains. Continued sin keeps things between us and God and prevents his mercy and love fully reaching us. Forgiveness allows God's mercy and love to flood through into our lives. Stop us being tempted on heaven as it is on earth. You know that if the swamp was drained, there would be no alligators. But you're so busy fighting the alligators, there's no time left to drain the swamp. The previous part of the Lord's Prayer asks God to keep the alligators away. And this final part of the prayer asks God to drain the swamp. For people like me, who can resist anything except temptation, asking God to remove temptation is particularly important. Temptation is not just a passive thing, such as coming across a packet of biscuits and leaving just an empty wrapper. The temptation we are asking God to stop is also an active thing run by Satan who would carpet the floor with packets of biscuits if he thought it would tempt us more. That's why Jesus also says, keep us from the evil one. Our plea in asking God to stop us being tempted is not a plea to stop all the things that we find difficult when learning to follow God's will in our lives. 
The Bible tells us that learning God's will is like a process of refinement. God will lead us into new situations, some of which we would not want to choose. My first wife, Julia, died of cancer. That was not a situation that I think either of us would have wanted to choose. But it has helped me grow in many ways. Yes, some of the situations that God leads us to, we would not want to choose. But we need to experience them if we are to grow closer to God. But as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, God will not let us be tested beyond our abilities. He will always, find a, he will always provide a path that helps us grow closer to him. The devil is also out there during these times of testing, trying to show us other paths that may look easier, but which lead away from God. One thing that is a barrier between us and God is addiction. And in seeking God's will, this can overcome even addiction. However, it's better not to become addicted and therefore all of and therefore avoid all of what addiction brings. An important thing to remember is that anything that causes some sort of response in us when it happens can become addictive. Pornography is designed to give a feeling of pleasure, and likewise with gambling, narcotics, and online abuse. Conspiracy theories are designed to bring on anger and distrust, all of these and more are roots to ad addiction. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 16 tells us that we should not deliberately and repeatedly put God into a situation where he has to rescue us. God knows the depths of our heart and what outcome we really want. Repeatedly looking for addiction is an indication that we may really want to be addicted God does want us to find things that give pleasure. But as 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 says, Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Therefore, actively seek to avoid those things that do not bring glory to God. It's now time to draw some conclusions and look at how we can apply all of this in our daily lives. The prayer Jesus gives us to be our own prayer is short but profound. We ask that God would ensure that his name is honoured, his kingdom would arrive and that his will would be done everywhere. We ask that God would provide for our current daily needs, forgive our past mistakes and keep us from making new ones. N.T. writes, not my favourite author, but some things he writes are worth remembering. One way he suggests to cement Jesus' prayer as our prayer is to pray one of the pleas from the Lord's Prayer every day of the week. Start with, hallowed be your name on Monday, and reflect on all that it can mean. By Saturday, you should be at stop us being tempted and reflect on all that that means. And maybe repeat the entire process three or four times each year. 
Everything that is important is in this prayer of Jesus. By making his prayer our prayer, we're moving from a life corrupted by Satan to a life delivered spotless to God. Amen.